This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Everyone is coming. Hopefully you can, can hear me with this. Yeah, it's working. Good. Okay, yeah. Um, so my name is Dr. Chris Colvin. I am uh, the Director of Research Impact and Engagement here at Queen's Management School. It's my pleasure uh, uh, to um, to host this uh, uh, um, great, great event that we're going to have um, um, a panel discussion about the, uh, the work in progress of the Resolution Foundation and we'll get uh, instant reactions uh, from a panel of experts. Uh, so Queen's University Belfast has had a very long association uh, with the Royal Family. Uh, this university's name, of course, coming from the charter bestowed on it by Queen Victoria. The late Queen Elizabeth II played an instrumental role in bringing peace to Northern Ireland. Her Majesty was a forthright advocate of reconciliation and took great interest in the province's well-being. Uh, it is therefore apt that this evening uh, we are going to be reflecting on the present and the future of the UK economy and Northern Ireland's role within it. Uh, we pass on our sympathies to the King and to the Royal Family at this time. So thank you very much, and I'll uh, uh, yield the floor to, to Torsten Bell, who will introduce uh, the, the, uh, the itinerary of events uh, for this evening. Thank you. Chris? Your whole audience. He doesn't get a clap until the end. He's sitting in the front row. It's going to be tough, guys. Right, my name is Austin Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation. I should also say, before we get going, thank you to Chris, not just for helping organise today, but also for being on the advisory group for the piece of work we're going to talk you through the outlines of today. Also, for some great conversations today, for educating us, and also for everyone else we've spoken to today. Thank you very much indeed for. Uh, that we've learned a lot. The, um, in general, the promise here is hopefully that we're going to have a conversation tonight. Uh, and the deal basically goes something like this. Um, we, which by we I mean the Resolution Foundation, which for those who don't know us is an economic research institute based in London, but focusing on living standards of low income households right across the UK and the London School of Economics, which is a university, so it may not be as exciting as Queen's Belfast. There's a university in the middle of London somewhere. Uh, have a joint two-year project looking at what the future of the UK's economic strategy should be, because as you may have noticed, it's not been going very well in the recent past. And so the deal is basically, we will run you through what the first year of that project has taken us through, with about 35 projects that have taken place, but those are summarised in a book which came out a month ago, which you should all grab, feel free to grab a copy of for free from the back of the room, but we're going to give you an overview of all the findings of that research project so far, tell us about the UK strategy, what the UK uh, economy as a whole faces in terms of challenges, in terms of changes, and in terms of what a plausible economic strategy might look like for a country like the UK in the 2020s. Uh, the deal goes, we'll tell you about what's in that research. If you can then engage in a conversation about what that reflects, what does that trigger in you or thoughts in you about how the Northern Irish economy fits into that bigger picture, and obviously into the bigger picture both of the our economy and also Europe and the, the world. So that's what we wanted to talk about because the work 
that we've been doing is obviously research-based, based on what you can tell, mainly from quantitative research, um, economic research, but that doesn't tell us everything about the nuance of what different strategies look like in different parts of the country, and that's what we've been trying to dig in in some really great conversations during the course of today, we'd like to dig into uh, during the course of um, this evening. So I hope that makes sense. The plan is that you're first of all going to have a presentation of that report from Sophie Hale, who's a principal economist at the Resolution Foundation. Sophie runs all of our trade work, so that means Brexit basically in the current climate, but hopefully one day might mean something else when we get around to other bits of trade uh, policy, and she also leads our intergenerational work, which is an important strand of work at the foundation. And then we're going to get two responses. You're going to hear from Paul Brokop, who's the Deputy Secretary of the Department for Economy in Northern Ireland, who may or may not end up coming to another country again in the months ahead if we can't sort politics uh, to some degree out. Then I should say again, thank you to Paul for some really great conversations and for bringing people in over the course of today. It's much appreciated. And then you're going to hear from Paul McFlynn, who's the co-director of the Nevin Economic Research Institute, who do lots of work uh, and whom we look to to learn more about more about the when we are looking to do that. And thank you again for their support with today. It's very much appreciated. So that is the plan. Hopefully that makes sense. Hopefully we'll get all of that done in time to give you some snacks and some booze uh, before everyone needs to run off to their things. Okay, great. So, Sophie, come and kick us off with your presentation. Thanks to um, Queen's University of Belfast for partnering with us on this event, um, as well as uh, the London Economic Research um, Institute, um, and then again to our partners on, on this project, the Economy 2030 Inquiry, to the LSC, um, Centre for Economic Performance, uh, and the Malcolm Foundation for funding the research. Um, so, oops, sorry. Uh, so first, we'll talk about the kind of the immediate priority um, the economy is facing now, uh, and that's obviously the kind of unexpected story of 2022, which has been um, inflation, uh, which has, as you can see here, consistently um, exceeded central bank expectations of, of, of the levels that it was going to reach throughout the year, um, as our kind of energy prices and, and, and wider kind of uh, prices have, have, have exceeded expectations. Um, this, I mean, obviously the Bank of England's forecast, so the kind of highest line there, um, predates the, the policy announcements of last week, which which um, mean that we do kind of expect a slightly lower outcome now, which you can see um, in our kind of latest forecast for, for September, and um, so it's kind of coming in a little bit below those, those previous expectations, but it's worth noting that, you know, other kind of private institutions, so Goldman Sachs was, was forecasting even higher than this, up to kind of 20% inflation um, not long ago, based on the, the prices we were expecting to see. Um, obviously, the situation is a bit different in Northern Ireland. Um, energy markets are very different for a couple of reasons. So first, um, obviously, the, the use of oil to heat homes instead of gas, um, and the fact that the, uh, the price cap doesn't, doesn't apply. And so that's why we're seeing this kind of profile of timing um, in the rest of the UK. Uh, but, but that inflation part would have looked quite different for Northern Ireland. Um, the other thing we should say is that the nature of the housing stock is very different in Northern Ireland. Um, which means that um, it's, it's less energy efficient on average, in part because of the type of homes that people tend to live in, so detached housing um, and less kind of apartment blocks, which tend to be a bit more energy efficient and, and therefore um, might see that fuel, fuel um, inflation hitting a bit harder. 
Um, and then the final point is that the, the, the lack of functioning executive has hindered uh, even the existing support scheme so far, and the announcement next week does state that Northern Ireland will be receiving an equivalent level of support, but um, yeah, kind of yet to see how, how exactly that's going to be administered. Um, but what does this mean for the economy? Um, I mean, again, I have to say these, these kind of predate the, the announcements of last week, but um, we do expect that the inflationary pressures that we're seeing are going to have significant and long-lasting impacts on in incomes. Um, so this, this kind of estimate from just before that announcement um, forecasts that two-year income growth will be the worst on record since the 60s, um, which, is, which is pretty bad. Um, but you know, obviously that will have changed as a result of the, the, the kind of macro scale of the, of the policy announcement that we heard last week. Um, so now turning to the kind of the, the core content of, of the report and um, that we're talking to you about today, um, which tries to look a bit at the kind of longer term performance of the UK economy um, that's kind of predated these, these kind of more acute pressures that we're seeing at the moment from inflation um, in, in, in our project with the LSE. Um, and the first thing to talk about is um, the kind of weak productivity and economic growth that we have seen um, in the last kind of decade or, or a couple of decades um, in the UK economy. Um, so uh, between, you can see in this chart, between 1990 and, and 2004, that the UK was actually kind of catching up with these kind of other comparative countries that were shown here. So this is the ratio of UK GDP per head, so kind of a measure of productivity relative countries um, and the fact that it's kind of falling shows that they were they were patching up that kind of productivity gap and then it starts rising again um, between 2004 and 2019 but that gap is kind of widening again as a result of the kind of stagnation in the UK economy um, we see the same so this kind of UK lagging behind um, is, is happening in Northern Ireland as well where kind of productivity has been consistently around kind of 0.8 um, the, the ratio here if we were showing Northern Ireland would be around 0.8 of the kind of Average and that um, spanned between kind of 2004 and 2019 as well, so it was also falling behind these comparators. Um, the second kind of key theme of, of the weakness in, in the kind of UK economy or issues in the UK economy is, is, is high inequality. Um, what we see here is income growth um, was much higher for kind of higher income deciles and lower income deciles over the kind of 70s and 80s, which you can see by the kind of difference um, over that time period on, on this chart. Um, and what that has done is left a, um, a fairly unequal UK economy um, that's been quite persistent, has you know, persisted into, the, into um, today, where you know, we've since seen kind of stagnation of wages um, across you know, most income deciles, um, but has left quite high levels of inequality. Um, inequality is lower in Northern Ireland, um, if, you look, if you just take the region um, in and of itself. Um, so those in the top income decile and 3.6 times those in the lower income decile in Northern Ireland, and that ratio is 5.2 for the UK on average. Um, but obviously, those on lower incomes um, in Northern Ireland are still seeing that kind of massive inequality between the highest income earners um, across the whole of the UK. Um, and when we take these two together, we see that the UK is suffering from a kind of toxic combination of um, high inequality um, and low growth. Um, and what this has meant is that while the, the incomes of the richest deciles, so the ones shown in um, green here, um, are still relatively equivalent to the kind of countries that we see, our, see as kind of comparative to the UK, so um, Germany, Norway, the Netherlands, 
and the incomes of those on kind of middle and low incomes have really fallen behind. And um, so you can see kind of um, 20 to 40% that people on those incomes are 20 to 40% um, poorer than their counterparts in these countries. Um, so what's the kind of solution um, and what do we need to do and what does a new economic strategy look like um, and what, what do we need to be kind of focusing on? And um, so first of all, we need to, following this decade of relative decline, um, we need to get serious about growth and we need to get serious about the change that's needed to deliver that growth. Um, and first of all, getting serious about growth means overcoming some of the kind of persistent views that are not really right about the UK economy and, and, and what, what its strengths are. So one, that we're this kind of one-trick pony that's all about finance, um, and the other, that the solution to kind of growth and the only way to kind of re-kick um, re start growth in the UK economy is to like boost manufacturing output, manufacturing jobs. And why is that? Well, the first thing is that the UK serves as a superpower, um, particularly our exporting services. It's the second biggest exporter of services um, in the world. Um, and that is where our kind of key strengths and comparative advantages lie. And that's where you know, there's a potential to, to, to kind of promote growth um, in the UK economy. But it doesn't come without trade-offs and services exports are particularly geographically concentrated in cities and higher income regions. Um, services exports as a share of our output are about three times that in the highest income decile regions as low income decile regions. So as I said, much more concentrated in, in, in kind of wealthier regions. Um, Northern Ireland is, um, is, a, is also an exporter of services, although it does have a, a large manufacturing um, sector. Um, and it actually exports a lot of manufacturing services, which um, are increasingly uh, becoming a, a key part of, kind of manufacturing sectors. Um, but also similar to the rest of the UK, it also exports a lot of ICT and financial services as well. Um, and delivering a strategy that kind of focuses on um, on reboosting these kind of high-value-added uh, services and, and our services exports will also kind of help us to address some of the underperformance that we see in UK cities. And um, what you can see here is that basically excluding. Um, Edinburgh and London, um, on the kind of yellow yellow line which represents the UK, uh, all of our cities are, are kind of uh, relatively low productivity, um, and in fact are lower than the kind of UK average productivity. Um, and this underperformance isn't just when you compare it to Germany, which has you know a much bigger manufacturing sector and is therefore much um, more able to have high productivity, uh, a kind of wider regional spread of high productivity cities um, because of its industrial structure. Um, we also have a, a kind of productivity issue when we compare ourselves against France, who have cities like Toulouse and Lyon, which are both um, you know, significantly higher productivity uh, than, than our kind of second level, level cities. Um, and you can see that Belfast is sitting pretty much in the middle of the pack of our kind of, um, uh, of, of those cities that we see. Um, and what's really key here is that we need to be really serious about the scale of change that's required to improve the productivity of these cities. It's not um, you know, just a simple kind of throwing a bit of money at it. This is a really big scale of policy change that's required to kind of close these productivity gaps between these cities in London. Um, we also need to deal with our investment drought. So the UK um, is well below its comparators um, in terms of its investment. It's 10% of GDP compared to 13% in France, Germany and the US. I mean, this is really needed to drive kind of productivity growth. 
Um, when we look across our cities, we actually see that Belfast um, is kind of outperforming a number of others, such as Cardiff, Manchester, and Leeds. And um, when we look at kind of um, uh, total capita per job, so um, I mean that would be like partly related to that, that difference in industrial structure. Um, but yes, it is slightly high, more high investment city than, than some of the comparators. Um, and then finally, I, I mentioned that you know re-promoting growth is going to will require um, a lot of economic change, and, and we need to be serious about the kind of scale of change that's required. Um, and that also means we need to stop worrying about there being kind of too much economic change happening uh, more generally. At the moment, there's kind of a lot of fears of there being a very fast-changing UK economy and um, changing kind of the um, industrial structure and structural shifts that are outpacing kind of the ability for for labour to kind of make these moves, and actually what we see when we look here is that the um, sectoral reallocations of workers has fallen um, for the UK as a whole, um, and we see the same trend in, in Northern Ireland, so this is the share of um, uh, of the workforce that is moving sector um, over the kind of 10-year uh, time period, um, and you see it's I mean, the numbers a bit cut off, which probably doesn't help you read that, um, but it is kind of falling down below 10% um, over this time period um, from, from a kind of much higher level in the past. So this is this is representing a kind of fall in, in the level of change that we're seeing. Um, and then finally, we also need to be uh, kind of present to the changes that have that have occurred and how these will be impacting um, economic growth. Um, but also how this is likely to be distributed. So obviously Brexit being the big kind of policy change um, that will be having a material, has already had a material impact on kind of UK trade openness and competitiveness, um, and it's kind of going against this, uh, you know, needing to kind of promote our, our services export super, you know, and, and kind of promote that superpower, um, uh, and it will kind of drag on UK growth as a result, and that's why we see some of the, we see these kind of expected loss in, in incomes and real wages. Um, uh, yes, and it, and it will also kind of change the industrial structure, um, kind of prior, uh, benefiting those sectors which tend to be lower productivity, so for example, food manufacturing, um, which was competing previously more with the EU and, and, and low productivity agriculture as well, and um, could see gains just from the kind of trade, the trade um, barriers that we've seen. And again, what we see is, is Northern Ireland um, kind of doing less badly than other regions in the analysis that we looked at um, as a result of um, it, it maintaining slightly more openness to EU trade um, whilst not seeing um, at least one way um, uh, new trade barriers um, when it exports to the to GB, although obviously there is um, barriers in, um, between uh, when, when GB is, uh, when Britain exports to Northern Ireland or, or sends goods to Northern Ireland. Um, then the second point is we need to get serious about inequality. As we said, the two kind of key issues is this toxic combination of inequality and low growth. Um, and wishful thinking is not going to be enough to reduce inequality and can't rely on kind of businesses, uh, kind of ESG schemes and corporate social responsibility. Um, a, a real strategy to deal with inequality needs to kind of tackle um, the big challenges that are facing um, the UK um, and three points to kind of know. So, Worker power matters. Um, our laws should reflect what we want for low-paid jobs. So, for example, minimum minimum hours for, for our workers. Um, and our focus should be on ensuring that those sectors that we're expecting to grow. So, for example, those related to 
transition to net zero are producing high quality jobs for workers in the UK. Um, when we look at poverty, um, we can see that poverty rates in the UK um, are, are high and, and this risks us leaving many behind um, without a kind of change in the economic strategy. And that's especially large families with some of the kind of policies that have policy changes that have left some families um, facing particularly high rates of poverty. As you can see um, families with, with four plus children see very high poverty rates in the, in the last few years. Um, poverty rates overall um, for the total population for um, children and for pensioners is actually a little bit lower in Northern Ireland. Uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, it's among the lowest of the nations and, and, and compared to English regions as well. Uh, probably kept low by uh, relatively lower household costs um, and high social security spending and actually a higher income for, for the lowest income decile as well than the UK average. Um, we also need to talk about wealth. So wealth has grown massively um, in the last couple of decades and you can see it's increased from 300% to 800% of GDP. Um, but we haven't seen an equivalent increase in the related tax take from wealth, so that still represents around um, two to three percent of, of GDP, despite this kind of rapid expansion in, in the value of wealth. And um, this again, we we maybe won't see quite an extreme, quite as an extreme trend in, in Northern Ireland because house prices haven't kind of, which is the you know source of a lot of the, the wealth change, um, haven't kind of um, blown up over this time period in the same way. As they have for the average um, UK household, um, and therefore the kind of losses from not taxing that wealth may be a little bit smaller as well. But um, on a UK kind of level, it's a really key issue um, in promoting this more equality in the UK. Um, and then, as I said, we need to be kind of serious about changes um, that are coming, and also, so not just on how those are going to be affecting growth, but how they might be affecting inequality. And um, so big changes are obviously required to meet the transition to net zero, and some of those will be kind of weighing on um, uh, increasing and um, could be exacerbating inequality. Um, this is showing uh, the number of um, clean heat um, fittings that will need to be done. So this is a kind of transition from um, gas or oil to, to kind of um, heat pumps, um, which, which homes will need to do to meet our net zero uh, commitments. And see that this kind of requires rapid escalation and the, the costs are quite um, quite massive. Um, Seven and a half thousand to fifteen thousand to install a heat pump. And when you compare that to the kind of uh, poorest fits of homeowners with a disposable income of, of nine thousand a year, it's quite hard to see how, how that can um, uh, be afforded without some, some more policy intervention. Um, so then we'll just talk about, well, what's what's the kind of prize from, from kind of trying to address these two things? Um, some people think that, you know, trying to deal with this kind of stagnation and, and inequality is just too difficult to do and that um, we, we're not able to kind of really deliver kind of change and that others think that nothing we can do will really turn around these current trends. It's just a kind of much broader trend of the way that all developed countries are going and, and the UK just following those trends. Um, but what we, what we show here is that the UK, this kind of toxic combination of, of low growth within high inequality means that the UK no longer needs to be kind of the best in class in either of these measures. Um, we don't need to aim for the incomes of the US um, or try to have some kind of social equality levels of, of Norway or Denmark. 
Um, the UK is being outperformed by several countries that we probably consider ourselves kind of an equivalent country to, um, which are kind of highlighted here. So Australia, Canada, Netherlands, Germany and France, who are all outperforming us on, on both measures. Um, showing sorry, um, the um, incomes on, on, on the, on the y-axis and inequality um, along the x-axis with the gene coefficients. Um, and so what's the prize of just kind of reaching those country levels of, of inequality and, um, and incomes? Well, we see when we just look at the, the middle one, which just looks at um, what would happen if you, if you match on um, inequality, um, you see that for the highest income households, they would be kind of losing out, but um, both bottom and middle income households would gain from, from just matching kind of the levels of inequality from, the, from that group of countries that were highlighted on the previous slide. And then when you combine that with meeting the incomes of those countries, all income groups would be set to benefit. Um, and at the same time, the, those on the lowest incomes could see gains in, in their incomes of more than 40%, which is, which is pretty massive when, you, as I said, we're not going for best in class, we're going for you know, an average of a, of a group of countries that, that should be quite achievable to reach. Um, and so some concluding thoughts, um, what should be on the uh, economic uh, policy makers to do list? Um, obviously first focusing, coping with the legacy of COVID and Brexit, um, uh, renewing the UK's economic strategy needs to be an absolute priority to kind of face the issues of, of stagnant incomes and high inequality that we're seeing. Um, as Wilson says, we, we kind of produced this report, and this is our kind of interim report halfway through the project, um, and we're now going on to, um, to, to look at the kind of policy phase. Um, and so we're aware that how this is playing out across different places and, and um, will vary and will continue to vary kind of as, as, the, uh, um, as things develop. And so we're really keen to listen to, to you about um, how this reflects your understanding of what's going on here. Um, and where we should be focusing that kind of policy development phase as well um, in the second phase. Great. That's it. Thank you very much, Sophie. So, the, um, so if you don't, I mean, you should read the whole book, obviously. Uh, but if you only take one sentence away from it, it is uh, that growth is too low, inequality is too high, and that the two put together are having a much more toxic combination on UK households than we generally recognise. So I'll give you one figure to prove that. That that chart at the end there about the prize showing you what it would, how much poorer middle income, so not the poorest, the middle income households in Britain are, in the United Kingdom, because having they have lower inequality and higher inequality and lower growth, is worth £8,800. So it's not a few hundred quid, it's £8,800. That's how much that's how much poorer we are than, and I think, and I, I talk to policymakers all the time who say, oh, we're, you know, we're basically the same as Australia and Canada. Like, we are not. We are a very, very long way behind. And obviously, Northern Ireland is then knock a few thousand off uh, that. So take away that, hopefully, if um, uh, nothing else, but hopefully you took away lots more than uh, just that. Now, it's easy for us to, uh, I can't make this work, but it's easy. I know, but I'm not, is this, is this actually working? How do you turn it on? I was just going to finish and let Paul get going. Uh, anyway, but our point is, hopefully there's lots of food for thought in this book on what an economic strategy looks like, but writing it down is easier than implementing it, which is what policymakers have to do. So now we're going to hear from one. So over to you, Paul. Find a way to turn it on. Thanks very much for raising expectations. That's all right. <laughs> you could solve it all, Paul. Come Super on. Super presentation. And, uh, well, I 
guess, first of all, thank you very much to the Resolution Foundation for, um, if I guess it's a great bit of work, really including Northern Ireland within, um, I guess, their research that too often forgotten about. So, super to be included, and thanks very much for the invitation, and thank you for also coming along. Um, you've got a really good sense of scale of the problem. I don't yet have the answer, unfortunately, because I'm afraid, but what we do have is a framework how we think this sort of structure economic policy within Northern Ireland to sort of face into those massive challenges. Um, so, we explains and hopefully, sort of, we're going to look through very briefly what they are and make keen then to pick up and pull on it, I guess, a different perspective. About. So, um, I guess first off, the scale of that problem just doubles down. We're going to have to do things differently than we've done before, and you know, as policymakers, we appreciate that. Uh, we absolutely appreciate that, um, and that's framing how we're approaching, I guess, economic policy going forward. That was, I guess, um, set out in the document published in Ten X Economic Vision. Oh, sorry, is that better? Yeah. Hey, is that better? You can hear me now. So, uh, so the 10x economic vision that we set out, that um, really, I guess, first off, the point of 10x economic vision was to set that ambition at, at the level that we think is appropriate, and that reflects the scale of the challenge that we need to, to make up. And then there's a framework that falls out of that, and you can structure your policies to sort of hopefully develop the interventions, the mitigations, and the policies that, that can make those different. So, if you're going to sort of understand 10x as, a, as an elevator pitch, or core things. It would be first up is that economic policy needs to follow a triple bottom line approach. So policy that comes out of our department, the wider sort of non-line executive needs to um, hit three things for it to be effective. It needs to make us more innovative. It needs to ensure that our policies drive inclusion. So we bring people along with us as long as we as well as being more innovative. And it needs to hit the net zero because so we have to create a sustainable economic policy. Um, and I think that's a different approach than traditionally you'd get from my place in particular, that probably would have been rooted in those traditional aims of economic policy about driving, driving investment, increasing trade, skills, skills, skills. So while they're still important to how we approach policy, what we're asking policy teams to start with is do you deliver the triple bottom line? Do you deliver the triple bottom line? Second one is focus, which we've not been great at in the past. Um, so when we talk about focus, we mean where do we have real strengths in our economy and how do we uh, develop them so in 2030 we have more of these strengths um, present in the economy and we can use so those underlying technologies that we think will cluster uh, in different sectors and parts of the economy that could grow. Uh, and, and the important thing there is that they could operate on a global scale and be competitive at that level. And then I mentioned there, the third bit is scale, um, I think it's probably is look back at the sort of a potted history of economic policy and the wider policy makers, we've not operated at the scale that is necessary to tackle those structural challenges that are so deeply entrenched in our economy. So we need to be thinking, starting with policy at scale, how can we deliver our scale and have an impact at scale? Um, and it's also worth mentioning that this isn't just a department of the economy exercise. We appreciate that what we're talking about isn't just delivered from our offices or our policies, but it's sort of far-reaching go into partnership with all the departments around the executive table. So I'm going to then talk a little bit about the triple bottom line, what we mean by uh, innovation, inclusion, and net zero. Uh, I've read before um, sort of closing with a, a thought. Um, so when we say more innovative, what do we mean by that? I think we're talking about more of our businesses being innovation driven. So we want to see a greater share of those types of businesses um, in our economy. 
We want to see more investment in R&D, because that will drive the type of growth that we think is important, and you know, that will be representative of those technologies. And we want to see a diffusion of that innovation to the whole economy. So it's not just concentrated in innovative pockets, whether that be in Belfast or Derry, that you get the diffusion infrastructure actively generating and spreading that, diffusion, uh, that innovation to the whole economy, so you think, uh, more people can have the benefits of it. Uh, inclusion is very important to us. I think this is you know, starting to think about economic policy and social policy as a single place. It's, it's counterproductive to view them as separate entities. Uh, and from our perspective, it's you know, there's, there's lots of examples about growth happening, but leaving lots of people behind. Sophie's slide was a really good illustration of the risks that we face there. So how do we ensure that the, you know, the benefits of that type of economic growth are felt by everybody here? So as a department, there's a bit of a, I guess, an exam question that we're currently facing into is, well, where could the department meaningfully make an impact on the inclusive policy? Uh, and broadly, that's that inclusive innovation, but basically I have to define that a little bit clearer. So as a startup at 10, we think we could make a meaningful impact on the um, in gender. So the, the employment rate for women is something where we think we could have a meaningful impact. Similarly, the disability employment gap is significant, and we think that's something economic policymakers should be interested in. And then likewise, the difference between most deprived and, and most affluent areas is again, uh, I think a lens that economic policymakers should be thinking about how do our policies sort of help improve those areas. So that's, that's what inclusion means to us. And then net zero is going to shape everything that we do. You know, there's you know, statutory responsibilities are a good way to shape some service behaviors. So we've got you know, the climate act to set fixed targets for us and we need to develop climate action plans that sort of set versions of that, I guess, set in terms of those targets for 2040 to 2030. You know, the most immediate one for the department is the generation of 80% of renewable electricity by 2030. So what does that mean? How do we ensure that you know, all of the department's policies are driving towards that quite serious and challenging um, target? And um, Also, I think really important to appreciate that we don't think about these in isolation. There's a real risk that you know, in a civil servant, you just put a civil servant in the box, and that's the innovation box is separate to the box, separate to the sustainability box. They all have to come together and they all have to operate at, at, at the same time. We talk about funding as well. Um, you know, budget pressures are going to be real um, in this coming period, so we need to think about how we can access those competitive funding streams better uh, you know, and, and have more success in those funding streams. Uh, and then metrics. So the ambition that we've set is for us to be one of the um, elite small advanced economies. So we're going to develop a series of internationally comparable metrics across the innovation, inclusion, and net zero um, objectives to see, look, are we performing against, I guess, similar type of chart as what came up of, um, in, the, in the earlier slide. Um, and so that's the ambition where we are. I think uh, the data, okay, I guess a snapshot of the data that I think I'll leave with is uh, that not only an economic composite, sorry, the composite economic index, and that compares our recovery post-crash um, to the rest of the UK. And so there's a bit of apples and oranges, so it's not perfect, but it's really illustrative that going into at the end of 2019, so we're just on the cusp of going into COVID, the Northern economy was still 4% below its sort of pre-crash peak, whereas the UK economy was 13.5% above. So what that tells me as an economic policymaker is that you know, some of the choices that we made post-crash did not prepare as well enough into COVID. So the challenge for us, I think, as economic policymakers, is going into 2030, you know, it feels like we've just been in a rolling series of crises up to now, and, it, and there'll be more of those crises ahead. 
So between now and 2030, hopefully it's a bit longer by the way, but for those of us that are working on COVID, we were desperately looking for a bit of break. We weren't quite ready for an energy crisis. Just, just as it went. But you know, as we face into the next crisis, which will happen, the Northern economy needs to be better prepared than it was going into COVID and similarly into this current cost of living crisis. And the, the decisions that we make now and sort of that Sophie's articulated will be defining in how well prepared we are for the next crisis. So, that's, that's our thoughts. Thank great. Much. Thank you very much, Paul. That was great. I think we'll forgive you for talking about the next crisis. We're kind of only just getting going on this one. So the, um, but thanks for the perfect thought. There, right. Other Paul. Yeah, go out there. So we're going we're to hear you properly. Okay. Uh, um, so, well, does everyone hear me? Yeah. Um, uh, thank you very much for, for having me along today and including us uh, in this uh, very important uh, uh, event. I think it's, uh, as it's said already, I think it is, uh, is great to see a, uh, an event focusing on uh, long-term goals and long-term strategy because, as you say, we're now sandwiched in between two crises and I don't think there is going to be an opportune time to focus on the, on, on the longer run, so it's a better idea just to, to force it. Um, I think looking at the, the title to the UK 2030s, taking the, the politics out of it and w w what the UK will, will possibly look like by uh, 2030 and its constituent um, parts. One of the big things that struck me, particularly in the, in the last week, looking at the, the UK and, and economic policy in particular, was uh, the announcement of the, the energy price uh, package. Um, when I think it would be fairly fair to say that Northern Ireland was a, a somewhat of an afterthought. Um, I, afterthought, there, there have been no thoughts put into it. Uh, we were just told that a similar arrangement would be made uh, for, for Northern Ireland. And it, it got me to thinking about the, the devolution settlement that we have uh, in the UK and the devolution um, where it's happened is very much an afterthought when it comes to UK uh, economic uh, policy making. You have a lack of devolution um, in many parts of the rest of the UK, and then you have this sort of uneven arrangement where you have different powers in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and metro mayors of, uh, of all different uh, uh, complexions uh, and, and authorities. And it strikes me that in, when, you, when, you, when you read about the, the economic benefits of devolution, Devolution in itself is meant to be a driver of, uh, of, of growth, and it's not. It's considered to be a hindrance. Um, anyone who's interacted with, a, with particularly with the Treasury from a, a, from a devolved uh, in, uh, government um, will we'll pick that up. Uh, uh, it's, not, it's not very subtle. Um, and I think you have this problem of a very highly centralised uh, UK state attempting to micromanage um, a lot of problems which would be um, which would be the responsibility of a regional or state level government in any other country um, uh, of, of comparable uh, size. So I think when you do have that kind of, um, when you do have the UK state in that kind of mode, it's easy to see how the longer term goals just never, uh, there's, there's nobody whose job it is to get around um, uh, to looking at that. And I think, uh, like, we, uh, when we, I mean, the, the, the problem with the energy package article was we don't have government uh, here, that one's on us. But even when we were looking, um, the Fiscal Commission for Northern Ireland reported uh, earlier this year 
um, about proposals for greater tax and spending powers, which would be a significant, would, or build as a significant economic uh, driver for Northern Ireland. But it's hard to read that report and not consider that it would be far better for that to be delivered if uh, the UK was a federal structure with all um, with all constituent parts having some uh, control over uh, over particular levers of, uh, of, of tax uh, and spend, it's too much of a risk for Northern Ireland to go out on the loan, as was the, uh, the experience um, uh, in Scotland. So, without that sort of without devolution being able to be that economic driver of growth, we, I mean, the productivity figures for Northern Ireland were mentioned. And the most impressive thing about Northern Ireland's productivity figures is it's managed to stay consistently almost at 0.8% uh, of the UK uh, average, which is pretty impressive when you consider how terrible the UK's. Um, uh, uh, so the consistency is the only thing you can give us uh, credit for. And I mean, there's lots of things in there. We do have a different sectoral makeup to the rest uh, of, of the UK. But it's more than that. We're uh, in certain what should be higher productivity sectors within the northern Ireland economy. We perform significantly worse than the rest of the UK. So it's a double whammy in terms of, uh, of a hit to our uh, our productivity. And look, there are, there are, uh, there are, there are many causes for that. You look at the decades of investment that Northern Ireland uh, missed out on post 1998. You did have a, a pretty good role for public spending and raising the game in Northern Ireland, but it obviously never got in too deep, and so austerity was uh, was enough to wipe out um, a significant uh, amount of it. And looking at other at other um, uh, other issues, uh, Paul mentioned the, the skills one, that it's impossible to attend an economic conference in Northern Ireland without at least, without at least one panel on skills. Um, and the conversation has never changed beyond simply just getting more um, people at a certain skill level pumped out into an economy which can't possibly uh, absorb them. We don't, the problem in Northern Ireland is we don't have the demand uh, for the type of skills for the, uh, for the economic performance that, that we, would, we would like to have. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty big uh, failure. In terms of the, the, the model of economic growth in Northern Ireland, I'm conscious I'm standing a few feet from the person who wrote the 10x uh, strategy, so um, it could have to be the kind of what I've written down here. Um, I think the focus on particular sectors is very welcome, and it was something that was kind of absent if you looked at even you know uh, just 10 years ago to, to Northern Ireland's economic uh, strategy documents. But if there's one central failure I can, I can make of the process is the inability to uh, question the failure of Northern Ireland economic policy. Because you couldn't let it look at that set of productivity figures and say, what happened in the last 10 years? How did we get it so, uh, so wrong? Um, and look, I understand you know, politicians have their final say over these documents and nobody likes to, to, to rake over the coals. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a, big, um, it's a big missing piece of the, of the puzzle. Um, and also as well, we, we don't tend to interrogate success um, particularly well either. We turn up with a pretty good cybersecurity um, industry and it uh, winds up in every uh, document uh, you look at uh, from government from, uh, from, uh, from there on in. But we never ask, well, how did it become so successful? Did we play any part in it? Um, and was our, was, our, was our economic strategy uh, positive uh, with it. The last point I wanted to make is, it was, um, is, a, is a thing uh, Sophie mentioned about the need to have uh, 
more change, a change within our labour market to be able to move to, 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 to higher productivity. And I think that's a crucial um, point. And I think coming from the experience of COVID, uh, one of the benefits, I think, of, of, of particularly of the, the furlough scheme and, and something that could come after it is the idea of protecting workers and not protecting jobs. To, to understand that if we're going to make these massive changes, particularly um, when we look at climate change and the amount of industries that we're going to have to, to change utterly, or in some cases, uh, remove, you can't ask people to make that broader sacrifice for, um, you know, for net zero, for environmental sustainability, and then not build in um, the same kind of compensation structure that you built in for people you asked um, to do so for, for, for issues of, 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 public, uh, of public health. Job quality is the other piece of that, though, and job quality has to be um, has to be something that we, we talk about more. Um, we have this thing of the Better Jobs Index in, in Northern Ireland, and I think it can become very reductive very quickly because you just turn up a number and it's a whole lot of indices behind it, but once it goes up or goes down, people get uh, very excited or very upset without asking too many uh, questions. Um, and I think we need a much more uh, holistic uh, approach to that, but uh, on that. On that bombshell. Thanks very much. Thank you, Paul. Right, hopefully this is working. Yes, people are vaguely nodding. That's a good sign in the right direction. Right, so that's one half of the conversation. People spoke at you. Uh, now we need some answers. Maybe on to the actually have some answers. You can have answers, you can have questions. There can be questions about what you were told or maybe about how you pay your oil bill uh, or electricity bill for this um, uh, winter. But I thought to kick us off while everyone gets their question ready. I'd be really unfair and ask the panel one hard question uh, each. And I'm trying. To, these are things that are, these are questions that are trying to connect this UK-wide diagnosis with what we see in the data um, for Northern Ireland. You can hopefully tell us what it means in real life. And I think with an onus on what are some of the like difficult decisions you might want to make that would turn an economic list into an economic strategy. What are the things you actually don't want to do or want to stop happening or are a problem? Because if you don't have those things, having a long list of things you'd like to happen isn't an economic strategy because it doesn't tell you what you're actually going to do. So here's a few to get us going. So um, Paul, why don't you take us first of all? Why? So you both, both Pauls in different ways, have touched on the last decade, which is a disaster for the UK, but it is quite phenomenal that Northern Ireland has managed to do worse than that during the last decade in terms of employment growth. The catch up that Northern Ireland was seeing in the 2000s didn't continue into the 2010s. In places that were lower employment places in the rest of the UK saw the highest employment growth, but Northern Ireland was low employment levels, but didn't see that in the last uh, decade. So Paul, why don't you kick us off on reflections on why didn't this decade, why was the last decade so bad in Northern Ireland, when we have had a quite a good decade in the previous? Um, so I think the short answer is the legacy of the financial crash is probably you know, it, the fact that the Nikkei index tells that story and that you know, it hit harder here than in other parts of the UK. The recovery was slower and more muted than in other parts of the UK. The UK so that's, if you're comparing that pre-crash and post-crash period, the, the event of the crash is your answer. It's, it's, it's what happened. I think there's probably some relatively boring but important to so we'll structural reasons of annual budgets that make it harder to do that long-term um, policy making that we're talking mm -hmm. about um, and then you know, I guess always keep it holding the mirror a little bit um, 
that some of the policy choices, like I said there, I think possibly some of the policy choices that we've made didn't keep pace with the events around us. And I think that's the lesson that we need to learn from COVID is um, recognizing at what stage of a crisis you're in and adapting your policy to face into that. So absolutely, you know, as with COVID, there was a rush to do that immediately policy response to, you know, as, as Paul says, to um, protect individuals and workers. You may get business failures around that, but it's the further people fall from the labor market, the harder it is to get them back, so that should be the priority. But the point at which, in any economic crisis, that you need to pivot from that into sort of ensuring that those longer term strategic goals are still being achieved. Okay. And I think that's probably a lesson that we need to learn in Northern Ireland and make sure that we apply this time around. Okay. Very good. The, um, uh, and for your hard question, okay, is so if you look again, we look at the data, what, is, what stands out in Northern Ireland compared to the UK averages? There's lots of things, but amongst them are on the industrial structure, more manufacturing bigger public sector, and more small businesses. Do we want all three of those? Well, I mean, the first, the first one, I mean, the, the public sector, one of the one that gets the most uh, coverage here, and everybody thinks that um, if we shrank the size of the, the public sector, we would magically create this uh, innovative and, uh, and, and rich private sector. And I think if you look at the experience of the last 10 years, when we did reduce the size of the public sector, um, it, didn't happen, and actually, if you took, uh, if you look at the salary profile uh, within within the public sector uh, here in, in Northern Ireland, you would make a significantly poor removing um, that. And actually, as well, if you look at it per head, um, obviously, because the public side of the public sector is a function of the government services and everything that's carried out, it's not much bigger here than it is in the rest of the UK. It's just the private sector here uh, is, is is smaller. So okay, so um, keep that. Keep that. Um, manufacturing. Manufacturing, I think you have to look under the hood of the manufacturing and get into the subsectors. We do have um, we, we do have a, a good manufacturing sector that does add positively to our productivity profile, but you're not comparing like with like when you're looking at the rest of the UK, a lot of uh, the, the food and agri-food, while providing lots of uh, jobs, its productivity profile is uh, it's, it's significantly so it makes it makes a big manufacturing sector look not, not as not as impressive, but if you break it down um, for what was the third one? Small businesses. Small businesses. That's a like a perennial problem, and I think I mean um, there are plenty of people in this audience who could talk about it as well. Um, why businesses in Northern Ireland get to a certain size and stop? I think Richard Ramsey has a, a thing about the BMW something other. If people get to a certain uh, point of, uh, of, of, yeah. of scale of operations, and then I call it the small house. Yeah, I mean, uh, once you can buy your like your medium-sized house, you're like I'm done. And that's it. But I mean, there's there's it's very very hard to pick that up in data. Um, <laughs> so uh, we, we we're I'm not particularly good at, uh, at, at giving an answer to that one. But I think that's a that's a significant problem, and it needs to it needs to be uh, there needs to be some sort of policy reaction to it. So, if you want to come in on. On the, this food manufacturing agriculture question, because obviously the post-Brexit world is putting the UK in certain directions on both of those, but it's obviously different from online. Yeah, that's right. So when we look at what we expect Brexit to be doing to the kind of industrial structure of the UK, um, it's very much favouring the kind of lower productivity sectors, um, and particularly sectors that were facing a lot of competition from the EU before. Um, so we see, yeah, and this kind of split in manufacturing where the kind of higher productivity um, manufacturing sector that you might have wanted to promote are, being, are expected to shrink while we get kind of an expansion of food manufacturing, we get an expansion of 
um, some kind of lower productivity agriculture, um, uh, massive shrinking of, of fishing, which we're already kind of seeing play out. Um, and obviously that, that is not going to kind of enhance productivity and that's why we see those kind of falls in real incomes that we showed um, above. Um, right. Yeah. And obviously for, for, for Belfast and for, for Northern Ireland more widely, that might look like an expansion of manufacturing if that's where it's concentrated, this activity. Um, but, you know, as you've as you said, it's not necessarily going to be the kind of manufacturing jobs and output that you want to be encouraging more. Great. I mean, that, is worth, that last point is worth pausing on. We don't actually know what the long term, even if we get something that looks like the current arrangements, we don't actually know what it does to Northern Ireland manufacturing. Because in one story is... Lots of bits of supply chains that are servicing GB could be based in Northern Ireland that cover GB and the alternative is a lot of food manufacturing and agricultural work that was servicing Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland from GB is sort of moved here. You get a larger agriculture sector, you get a larger food manufacturing sector. That isn't a richer country, that's probably a kind of roughly where we are now kind of country. So it doesn't necessarily, it's, I think we don't know how this plays out. Right, let's get some questions, thoughts, answers. There's two here, we'll take it once. Mike, just there, sir. I've heard much said about economic growth, but what about the limits to growth? And what about the impact of those limits on something else that was mentioned, uh, at least uh, peripherally, not in the mainstream, the net zero commitment? Yeah. Great. It could go on, but I won't. No, that's great. What was your name, sir? Yeah. Oh, Tony, Tony Weeks. Tony. Do you want to pass the mic behind you to the gentleman? Okay. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Boyd Black, uh, Labour Party. Um, the UK is predominantly a service economy, something like 80% or thereabouts. And Northern Ireland's almost the same percentage sector-wise. Now, back in the 1960s, uh, some of us can remember, uh, Harold Wilson was faced with the same problem of low service sector productivity uh, and uh, also faced with full employment, shortage of labour, and wanting to expand manufacturing, as he did in those days. And, and the solution he introduced was a selective employment tax to uh, encourage productivity growth in the service sector. And I just wonder, is, should something like that be relevant to today's economy? Because we've got to release labor from low productivity services to go into high productivity services, not necessarily into manufacturing. Uh, and the other thing I wonder uh, is, the, is the increase in, that, in employers' national insurance contributions, is that the equivalent of the selective employment tax? Or, or could it be tweaked to be the equivalent? Or do we want it at all? I don't know the answer. I'm asking the question. Okay, that's, that's great questions there. Um, uh, why don't you take the first question on limits to growth in, in the context of the specifics of net zero, obviously, but... The, the, there are wider questions of sustainability. And, and thanks for not giving me economic issue questions. That's right. <laughs> we can help on that. Um, no, I, I think you're absolutely right, um, Tony, which is why we talk about the triple bottom line, is that growth in isolation will not fix the long-standing problems that we have in this place. And you need to think about how is that growth inclusive? How do we ensure that you know, the, the inactivity rates that we have are concerned and should trouble everybody that's involved in policy making, whether that's economic or social policy. We have to ensure that you know, when we talk about inclusion, that we we actually mean it, that the growth is, is distributed. And 
also that, that net zero has to shape everything that we do. So and that's, that's the reason why we talk about triple bottom line is that you have policymakers have to think about all three at the same time, which is a massive challenge for people to get their head around, but that's the nature of the challenge that we're facing into. And if we just picked an easy way to go about it, we just repeat the mistakes that I guess Paul's mentioned earlier on the 20 odd years of economic policy that haven't tackled those long-standing structural problems that we have. Just to try and be a bit perky for one second, because it'll be a bit depressing. On on your, uh, I think we are we should be a bit careful about too much of a tech. We shouldn't always put all growth in tension with all environmental concerns. Although obviously lots of the growth we've had in the last two centuries has been catastrophic for our environmental concerns, given that that's where we've ended up. Um, but if we want to be optimistic, you look at our consumption levels having not fallen very at all in the last thirty years, but our carbon consumption levels have fallen much faster than any of us thought were possible. Or if we looked at the cost of renewable energy, then out there, I, mean, I remember so my background in the UK Treasury in the late 2000s. If you looked at what people thought was possible then in terms of greening our electricity, which is easy bit, the electricity generation bit of this picture, so I don't want to pretend there aren't big challenges, but the things have turned out to be much better on that metric than we thought was possible. We, we should confidently think we can definitely deliver a carbon-free electricity generation sector in the, in the life in the livable future, which if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I wasn't sure British politics could deliver. So there are some reasons for optimism against two centuries of catastrophic failure. So it depends which ones you want to uh, focus on. Just, um, oh, sorry for not being perfect. Um, Come on, Paul, um, tell us some good news. Well, so we give uh, tourism the opportunity to see, I guess, you know, what's exciting about uh, uh, the economy here. So, um, yeah. Andrew from Catagene came down and talked about what they're doing alongside sure. Catalyst. And that, that's, that's a really good example how you can get sort of absolutely you know, real great potential and growth in a net zero, uh, sort of low carbon technology. And that's the type of activity and type of um, technologies that we should be focused on. That was, that was quite close to Perky. You nearly got there. Do you want to cover Wilson or do you want me to do economic history? You go first. <laughs> okay, the, um, uh, so I think the Wilson government. Uh, and the Thatcher government are worth revisiting if the exam question is when has a government had an economic strategy, by, if by which we mean they knew what they were trying to deliver and they joined up social policy, economic policy to try to deliver that. So I'm not making a judgment, a value judgment about whether you like the outcomes of those two governments. One was obviously lasted a while longer and changed a lot of other things, but they definitely both had a strategy. And I think so. It, um, and I think it's hard to argue that we have had one in the like, recent past, in the last 20 years, and we definitely, obviously, in that applies in a Northern Ireland context and in a UK-wide context. So I think the lessons from uh, the Wilson government, leave aside the specifics of the individual bits of policy, because otherwise we, we, there's a slight danger of arguing about some of the minutiae, but the, the lessons which are, he was looking at wanting more economic change um, of the kind you're talking about, so improving manufacturing businesses so that they were investing so that you did have higher value manufacturing going on because he was watching us fall behind other parts of Europe, which was certainly happening after the war. That's when this is the period when France and Germany are rebuilding and then Russia, they're not yet ahead of us, but they're like catching up very fast. Um, now, the interesting bits for us then are some of the policies he looked at included quite big increases in income insurance, earnings insurance if you lost your job. Okay, so if, if your manufacturing sector went through change, you would have more of your income protected for a period of unemployment afterwards. We obviously do none of that. Like the UK social security system is marked by not doing any earnings insurance unless you're a low earner, in which case you get decent-ish 
earnings insurance, but not much money because the basic rates of benefits are very low. But if you're a middle earner, so I, I mean, we did a set of focus groups March, April, I think, um, on people's just views of economic change. I remember there was one up in, uh, it was near Glasgow, it wasn't in Glasgow. And a worker there said something that basically you hear versions of quite often. So it's a middle income person, so they were, I think they were earning high 20s. So they're not low, but they're not really rich. They're kind of pretty much average earner, slightly above average earner. Uh, they had a mortgage, and they, they said they weren't worried per se about their job. So they didn't have because there's higher employment right now. But they knew that they basically couldn't last more than, they couldn't pay the mortgage for two months if they did lose their job, because benefits would basically be zero for them. Because they had some savings, so you get means tested. And I think their partner worked as well, so they'd probably get nothing. So they'd go from pretty well off to earners to losing all of it. So that was the, and that is a problem. And people do say, including middle income earners, say, I won't take a risk in my job because I can't risk that happening. And once you're in that world, that is bad for productivity. It's bad for average earnings. Like if you stay put in a job, your earnings growth is far lower than if you move between jobs. I think the average wage growth is nearly double. If you, more, in fact, it's more than double if you move jobs than if you stay put in a given year. Unless you work at the Resolution Foundation, which case you must stay put. But you have very large pay rises. But for everybody else, you need to move jobs reasonably often to get decent pay. And so Wilson's story, which was white heat of technology, new kinds of manufacturing, shutting down some old kinds of manufacturing, was supported by a social policy agenda, which was, I will provide that level of change to encourage people, to do, as well as social partnership and stuff. So I think that we should learn from that. On the specifics of the tax proposal, I don't think people will be going back to what he did to try and force it by the tax system uh, and the national insurance rise. One, isn't the same, but two, it's about to get scrapped. So <laughs> we'll never find out. Anyway, let's get some more questions. Who else wants to come in? Any answers? There's a lady here and there's a gentleman. Um, my name is Rosemary McMahon, and you mentioned that we have like um, a, high, you know, a large public sector and lots of small businesses. Yeah. Well, why aren't we using a community wealth building model where we're harnessing the power of that public sector to support the, business, the small businesses? Paul, you said when COVID hit that we weren't, you felt like we weren't, hadn't been very prepared by the economic strategy of the previous. Um, 10 years. Well, when COVID hit, I was back at Queen's here doing some research, and my background is in welfare rights. So my interest is in reducing inequality and tackling poverty. And I was looking at why Belfast City Council didn't adopt community wealth building as their strategy for economic development, because they were actually looking at the approach before Preston, but didn't take it any further. And I found an article that Neil McEnroy had written in 2014, and it was entitled Belfast um, Opportunity. And the opportunity was that we hadn't had the same cuts to the public sector and um, we had the opportunity to collaborate like mad and to make us more, because we were just coming out of, you know, we've had the banking crash, so there's been an economic shock. So in order to make us more resilient for future economic shocks, he recommended that we collaborate like mad um, to make us more resilient, but we didn't. And interestingly, during COVID, at the end of 2020, Preston had a furlough rate of 6.9%, whereas Belfast was about 12%. So, yeah, that's my question. Why don't we really embrace? I know the Department for Communities are working on this, and they have an expert panel right now. Where's the Department for Economy about this? And why can't we have like a minister for, that has a brief for community wealth building like to do? Do you want to? But given that not everyone would have spent there as much time looking at community wealth building, do you want to give a quick short what it means? Two sentences? 
Um, Can you well, do it? it's about restructuring the um, economy so that it, um, we distribute ownership better, so that more power, more economic power lies in the hands of local people and communities. Own local, own local and buy local. Pardon? Own local and buy local. Yes, yes. Let's take this question here from the gentleman. Can we pass the mic across because we can't afford more than one mic because we didn't do enough community wealth building in the mics department. Go ahead, sir. Thank you. Uh, my name is John McCusker. I'm a retired trade union official. Um, I was interested in what the department uh, official said about inclusiveness because um, at times one listens to what the department's plans are and they tend to certainly give the impression that the knowledge economy and its expansion to solve all our problems. Now, there's a substantial section of our population who would abhor the thought of having to spend day and day in front of a TV monitor. And are the people who have talents uh, of being able to build things and make things. And I'm concerned about what future there is for those people. Uh, and and we're looking forward. And I don't know what to extent uh, you look forward. It's going to look at the type of jobs that are available and how this match the aptitudes of people in the future. Thank you. Very good. That's a very good uh, long question, John. The one thing we didn't cover in this, and we didn't manage to do justice in this book, but there's, there's one of the papers that fed it, has fed into this project is an examination of people's how much they enjoy their jobs. Okay, and. There's a lot of stuff out there saying all oh, the jobs out there are rubbish these days. There was a book called Bullshit Jobs, you remember this? Okay, because that's a bullshit book. Okay. So it says everyone hates their jobs these days, they all think the job's useless because it's just kind of, partly it's an anti-services thing in general, nobody wants to sit in front of a computer, nobody wants to service other people, they just want to make things, basically the gist of the book. The, um, now, it's nonsense because overall people's job satisfaction hasn't come down at all actually. It's pretty much stayed the same and people's view that their job is worthwhile has if anything gone up but that's on average but amongst lower earners jobs if you go to the 90s lower earners are the most satisfied people in the country with their jobs okay by um, and high earners are the least satisfied because they're really stressed overall job satisfaction is higher amongst lower earners in the 1990s there's deep skepticism here they um, what the surveys say and there's a lot of them uh no, but it's not, it makes sense if you reflect back to like you know i used to work in pubs in the 90s I reflect who was having a perfectly nice time. There was a lot of low earners having, they, they weren't rich. They had, a, this is in the countryside, so there were lower costs. But there were people who had control of their lives. They weren't working in front of a computer. When we look, dug into what makes people unhappy in their jobs, I'm afraid working in a computer does make people quite unhappy with their jobs. I've got even worse news. We're going to keep working on computers. Um, so I think that is worth, I think quality of work is really important. But I think we shouldn't be, it shouldn't be anti-services and like everyone's not doesn't need to lay bricks to be happy in their job. We should make jobs worthwhile, whatever they're doing. But low earners being less happy with their job than they used to be. And that remember the minimum wage has gone up loads during that phase. So we're paying low earners more, but they've got less job satisfaction since we started paying them more. So we do need to wrap with that. It's not an argument against the minimum wage. We have literally campaigned for it. It's a think harder about what else you need to do. Now, why don't we do the um uh well, well why don't you come in on community wealth building? Is it gonna happen in Northern Ireland? Why hasn't it happened? Um, I, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I, I think uh, we need to look at the, at the UK as a whole and the devolution uh, experience. Nobody wants to give up uh, that kind of power. So actually, maybe community wealth building from the bottom up is the only uh, is the only way it's actually it's actually ever going to, to happen. Um, 
I just wanted to come back in, you were mentioning yeah. there earlier about the um, you know, uh, low paid uh, sectors, because when we looked at uh, work looking at, at automation, and one of the things we, we came across for, for Northern Ireland, looking at the risk of, of automation, was that the risk of automation in lots of sectors in Northern Ireland was uh, was quite much much lower because the cost of the technologies um, that would need to be brought in are more expensive than the labour input um, that they would technically be um, uh, replacing. That's not a great situation, that's a, that's a but it, you can it, people saw it as a positive. You know, oh, we're we're so badly paid. <laughs> That the robots don't bother coming to steal our jobs when you should have said actually no what this is telling you is that having pressure on wages is a driver of productivity um, yeah. growth and that's something that's been absent at the uk level uh, for the last um, more than more than 10 years but particularly over the, the last 10 years and it's a big problem um, in northern ireland uh, as well and it feeds into that kind of malaise in the, in the private sector of not taking that next uh, leap but also as well within that having the uh, income security the earnings protection has to happen alongside um, uh, that uh, as well or else uh, you just make a lot of people unemployed. So do you want to come in on any of these? Okay. Uh, do you want to defend yourself from having failed to take the advice of the Welfare Council or from basically thinking that no one's everyone's going to be a knowledge worker? You're massive there right? Sorry, I've got to up a bit somehow, cool. Yeah, I think, yeah, so there's, there's, lots, there's lots of what I've said aligns with what sort of department of communities are looking at in community wealth building. So there's a huge opportunity, so you know, that talks about economic and social policy being joined in the hip, and that's, you know, sometimes we have exactly the same objectives, we just talk different languages, and you know, I, I rock up and talk about 10x, so you'll get more work from DFC talking about community wealth building, but we're actually saying the same thing. Um, so there's a bit of a just joining up and us understanding what are our objectives, what are we looking to achieve, and what's the best way to achieve them without getting too hung up on ministers talking different languages. But there is, I think, a huge opportunity for us to align that DFC work programme with what I've set out here. You know, that's happening, you might not see it, but it is happening between, you know, between departments. Um, am I a massive blow? <laughs> I think. I guess reframing the question from our perspective is that—that's very subtle of you. <laughs> you meant to reframe the question, but not tell us you're reframing the question. Yeah. Well, I guess it's, um, it was, we talked about it, but you know, the advanced composites. There'll still be, you know, the, the industrial sort of heritage that exists in the line will still exist. You still get, as you say, people making things. The, the challenge that we've got is: are they making things at the right scales? Are they globally competitive? And are they? developing a cluster that brings in wide enough employment share of, of as Paul says, those high quality, high paying jobs. And, and that's our objective. So if you know, people making things, tick them boxes, then that's more of that we're comfortable with, as well as people looking at screens. We love our screens. The, um, just to make this a bit more controversial, I was going to just give a warning on the date. So the community wealth building argument is really interesting. Really. The, um, I think it's worth folks separating out the own local, or at least own something, would be a good thing, and the always buy local part of this picture. There. And I'm going to, uh, I'll start with that. So here's a way to think about it, which is you more, more spread ownership of assets in general is desirable for lots of outcome reasons, okay, in terms of people's ability to take risk, in terms of their ability to manage down their costs and all kinds of things, okay, and it gives them industrial control is probably a better thing in general, as I'm sure you would uh, agree from your previous life. But uh, I think we should be a bit careful about everybody buying everything local because we will be very poor 
And that is because economies of scaling. I'll give you one, a number of ways of thinking about this. Okay, so the first is um, uh, Preston buying everything local. It's quite might, might be good for Preston. Let's assume for a second without going into the complicated economics of it. But let's assume it's good for Preston. London buying everything local is a turkey for the rest of the country. You probably don't want that. Okay, so we don't want everyone buying everything local. That's the like give and take bit of this picture. There's a second thing, and the reason I'm raising this is because both on the left and the right, I regularly get told by people now that trade is basically a bad thing. So I did a thing recently when John Redwood was there. I, I didn't know he was going to be there, otherwise I wouldn't have been there. But I was there. You know, we all make mistakes in life. Uh, and he and he started saying, I said, but well, I think it was actually discussing your paper on Brexit. And like, we are very reasonable, independent people. I was showing them some charts. And he said, oh, look, it doesn't matter. If these, this, we're, we're going to be a less open economy after Brexit. You don't have to be a serious economist to know that. It's just called better some trade barriers. You're probably going to do less trade. And he basically said, oh, it's, it's much better that we trade less. Uh, in fact, we shouldn't really trade at all. And that included food in this conversation. We didn't want any food coming in. Yeah, and I was like, well, John, that's fine, but Margaret Thatcher would not be very happy with this position because we'll be a lot poorer when we do that. And I'm going to give you a thought experiment, which I think I'm nicking from Paul Krugman, I mean, which is Somerset. Do not want Somerset having a big wall all the way around it with nothing going in and nothing going out because there aren't many people in Somerset and there aren't many people in Northern Ireland. And, you, and economies of scale means that we can't officially produce an iPhone in Somerset. Okay, so the iPhone would cost £5,000 to produce it just for Somerset, as, an, as a case study, I'm making that number up. But so, uh, all I would say is, it's become very fashionable to forget some of the basic economics, which is economies of scale are really important. For, to maintain anything like our current standard of living, we need places like Northern Ireland and Belfast or wherever you want to focus on, producing things that the rest of the world wants. There's not some way of maintaining the current living standards of advanced world uh, subject to the question about sustainability without producing for other markets because if we because we cannot produce for small populations at this kind of productivity levels and so we will have much lower living standards and that is not where everybody is nowadays it's very unfashionable but given that it's true i thought i should add it right let's take one last set of questions and then we will wrap up we'll take two at the back here because the back has been very late let's take a few let's take these two to start just interested in thoughts and things like uh, the relationship between uh, local activity and inequality, yeah. uh, <clears throat> cause and effect. And then, just in, in terms of the, the mantra we're coming out um, from uh, senior members of government last week, it's just not easy. It's just we just need to work harder. You should definitely work. You, you should definitely work harder. So work. What's your name? Jonathan. Jonathan. There's a lady behind you. I think it's a question. Hi, I'm Alex Brennan. Um, actually, pause and explain that you made a good point about how uh, we don't have a demand for skills that we've been pushing for, but a demand that we do have that was created by the sales barometer was uh, for the care sector. Um, and that's something that whenever we're talking though about scaling and, and improvement in the economy and, and whatnot and growth, it's always within IT and STEM and it's never involving other sectors such as care, which and I know, you know, that's because you want to get people, people into better jobs and those jobs Care is a, a precarious and low-paid sector, um, but it is essential, and that was proven by the pandemic when all the childcare centres shut and those women have also since left work because it's unaffordable and inaccessible. Um, so, wouldn't it? I suppose you know, what, what is the the plan, or you know, wouldn't it make sense then to invest in a sector like care in Northern Ireland specifically, where you know it, the demand is there? And, Instead of it, it is a low-paid and precarious sector, but to invest in it so that it's not and it attracts, 
you know, at the moment I've attracted mainly women, but then it also has been a viable career choice for, it's attracted career choice for, for men and boys as well. Um, and then as well, you know, specifically for the DFE's um, objectives of, of uh, reducing inequalities, specifically for women's employment. A lot of the, the sector is, is women working in it, so it would improve women working within the care sector, but then as well, if there was affordable and accessible care, then women in other sectors would then be able to return fully or, or partially to the labor market. Um, and okay. I'm assuming they would get that from, sorry. No, no, that's great. Yeah. We should definitely get your second biggest sector, isn't it? And by employment, I think, health and care. Only retail, I think, is bigger. So yeah, that's a good idea to pay some attention to your second biggest employing sector as a rule of life. There's a gentleman here. I come here. I thought. Go ahead, sir. Hi, uh, Richard Ramsey, Ulster Bank. Uh, just in reference to the, the summer set being walled off, I think the business secretary might be contained in, in that wall. So I, I didn't say there weren't silver linings for everybody else. No bad thing. But, but uh, just in terms, just in terms of some uh, sort of comments on strategy over the last 20, 30 years that I've observed, observed um, the big, biggest problem is the lack of accountability. And if you think of Northern Ireland in a political sense, the Good Friday Agreement, the phrase we used to hear a lot about was constructive ambiguity. And that's what's happened with economic policy and strategy, where it's become, even when we had the economy being the number one priority, it meant all things to all people, whether it was Trumpian policies in the US or Fidel Castro policies in Cuba, it encompassed everything. And the problem was, no priorities, no focus, and Northern Ireland's perpetual problem is on delivery. The outcome with strategies is the publication of the strategy. Invariably, you'll see the author of the strategy move on as soon as it is published, and delivery then just becomes something which is, oh, we've actually kind of job done. So I sort of think there needs to be more focus on that. And then just Paul mentioned the problem about inability to interrogate uh, failure, and that's a massive issue. And the PR environment over the last 20 years has been, we only want to hear the positives. Recession, you know, and, and it was by previous ministers, was actually a word that was banned. You know, so when you have this kind of environment, you're not going to challenge the problems. And to me, the biggest challenge uh, for the Northern Ireland economy when it links to productivity, links to inequality, links to the the cost of living crisis, you could have sort of triple benefits in this, is our educational inequality and the low levels of educational attainment. So on the one hand we have, we'll have in the news when A-level results and GCSEs come out, best grades in the UK, you know, champion courts, all of that. But Northern Ireland is still churning out a bigger proportion of its school leavers with no qualifications whatsoever. And I would, my strategy would be dial down on support, financial or whatever you're giving it, top, higher end, and you're going to have to increase the bottom. And ultimately, when we're in this cost of living crisis mode uh, for the next number of years, you've got to scale up the bottom end. Otherwise, we're just paying for their social problems and we're not going to have the public expenditure to do. Great. Thank you for loads of great questions. Let's, let's um, take those and thank you for the thoughts about Somerset as well to keep everyone perky on the way uh, home. Right. Um, the link between low productivity and inequality. I mean, do you want to take how we think about that in terms of this project? Because then a whole, this is a very active debate, obviously. People have different views on this. So we can give you our view there. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, so I mean, yeah, as I said, the way that we're kind of presenting it in the um, Economy 2030 inquiry is um, that these are kind of making each other worse by the kind of combination, you know, we, could, we talk about it as like a toxic combination. So we, we don't kind of point to um, low productivity causing inequality or, or, or high inequality being the cause of the, the um, low productivity that we've experienced, but we say the fact that you have those two things present at the same time um, in the economy makes it a lot worse, and especially for, for, for low-income households. So before, when there was you know, a little bit of productivity growth, a little bit of income growth, it didn't feel as, as, as bad as it does when you kind of stop getting that productivity growth and you have this kind of really high wealth at the top and, and you kind of see those, those income gaps um, much, more, much more kind of clearly when, when you're not seeing kind of pay rises um, year on year. Um, Great. Yes. Yeah. Well, why don't you take Richard's question, which is basically, where's the accountability? Where's the focus? It's hard to, very hard to disagree with, with with a lot of what he said there. I mean, in terms of political accountability um, in Northern Ireland, <laughs> well above my uh, my pay grade. But the educational point actually was something I did, I didn't mention, and it's something that, that that needs to be to be talked about. And that's a good way of framing it. That's the hard choice: is that it's accepting that you need to remove money from the top end of the system and uh, to the lower uh, to the lower to the lower end to to, to really. Uh, Bridge that disparity. I just want to mention as well on, on the care sector. Um, uh, this is something that, that, that it's going to be a much big, bigger uh, portion of our total. Uh, well, whether you're looking at an aging society, um, and as well, obviously the, the, the avoidable, unavoidable point that if you're going to have um, more people uh, coming into the workforce, you are going to need the care infrastructure there. Uh, I know uh, in the in the Republic that they brought in. A, employment sector order to try and bring some kind of um, uh, sector-specific minimums into, into that. And it would strike me that's a good place to start. Um, but also, to, not just to build in minimums in these sectors, to build in paths uh, for high, you know, to different levels and to tie it to qualifications so that people see it as a career and not just a job that you get, um, that, that you fall into. And I think like, you have to build it to look like the sector that you want it uh, to be. Minimums are good to start out with, but you need to, to, to build in the rest of the, of the career infrastructure for that. Great. Care jobs? I think Paul gave a better answer than, than I could must have had. So, um, childcare is probably in the basket as well, and you talked about this being an enabler, you know, particularly for getting women back into the workplace and in particular jobs. And, you know, it's, I didn't agree with most of what you talked about, to be honest. Just, yeah, go. Uh, so just really quickly, obviously the other side of Brexit, which we haven't talked about a lot um, today, is like migration policy changing, um, and obviously that was you know much more focused around uh, kind of low skill migration before, or at least um, it, it made it a lot easier in, in the system than it was before. And now you know it's, it's very much based around um, being meeting kind of wage thresholds, etc., which will not be supporting those kind of um, skill gaps and, and, and employment gaps that you're talking about, for example, in the care sector. So potentially some yeah reform might be needed um, if you really are seeing the kind of scale of shortages that because it's going to be quite an acute demand before you can uh, necessarily make the changes um, from the kind of domestic labour market. That, that's great. In, in the interest of like encouraging us to face up to trade-offs because trade-offs, you don't, have to, you don't face up to trade-offs and choices, you haven't got a strategy. I think one thing I would always think about in your head is to distinguish between the, the tradable sectors so people producing stuff that can be sold either abroad or between places, okay, even within the United Kingdom or and non-tradable sectors, work that has to be delivered in person, which care is the like classic example. The 
the in, mo, mo, our growth and our national income largely rests on our success on the non-tradable sectors, not the quality of our country, right? But just our ability to pay for other imports that we then maintain our standard of living, like the iPhones I was mentioning earlier, which you may or may not want. But the, um, I think that when we're talking about the non-tradable sectors, we've, and those are internationally competitive, right? So we can't control the environment within which we're competing for those sectors. Yeah. The non-tradable sectors, we have got a lot more choice than most economists have generally implied. So we can choose to have a higher paying social care, childcare sector if we want. There's a strong case for doing that in terms of spreading good jobs in every community. We just need to face up to that. We'll push up the prices of those sectors. And that's a, our view is that's a price worth paying, but it does push up the price of those sectors. And that, and that's a, that is actually how we, that's called pre-distribution. That's how we redistribute for the money we're making in the non the tradable sectors and make sure people that work in the non-tradable sectors are able to benefit from that. But it is a trade-off. There's a there are winners and losers, and that is what real economic strategy is actually about. And you can you either have that implicitly and never say it, or you like face up to that's what you're trying to do. Drive up wages for, for lower earners in non-tradable sectors and pushing up prices for higher earners in tradable sectors. We should definitely do that. They, um, but some people will definitely not like it once they like that sounds a lot less fluffy than we should pay carers more, but people say that without being like, and your prices will go up or your taxes will go up. So it's important to face up to trade-offs, everyone. Now, one trade-off is that we have to finish because the time has run out. So I want to say thank you very much to our panel for making the time today. Can we all thank them, please? Um, can we thank Queens uh, and Chris for supporting us and for the Neville Institute and all of you for coming along. I said our goal was a conversation, at least from our perspective, it's definitely been a really useful one, so thank you for that, and I hope it's been useful to all of you too. And last word to our host, Chris. Yes, thank you very much, Thorsten, and uh, the great discussion we have. We have a, a um, reception now, um, so please help yourself. We have actually over-catered, because... Uh, Eat a lot. Yeah, I, I, I guess um, a few of you came because what's happening in the, the UK right now, um, uh, so please help yourself to as many bolivons as you can possibly, uh, you know, take. It's a productivity increase. Yeah. More bolivons. So, excellent. Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much again. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.